0: This is The Guardian.
1: I'm Gabrielle Jackson, and this is the Full Story Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. The Reserve Bank has now raised interest rates for five months in a row. With the latest rise announced this week, it's most aggressive since 1994, putting a crunch on Australian homeowners who've seen their mortgage payments skyrocket. Meanwhile, many Australians are struggling. Real wages have fallen and savings are dwindling, prompting calls from the likes of Green Senator Nick McKim for the bank's governor, Dr Philip Lowe, to be sacked.
0: Dr Lowe has got to go because he told Australians interest rates wouldn't go up until 2024. Now he's smashing renters, mortgage holders, small business owners, and he's misled them. Despite
1: calls for his resignation this week, Lowe is holding firm and foreshadowing more increases to come.
0: The board is committed to doing what's necessary to ensure that inflation returns to target over time. High inflation is a scourge.
1: But can monetary policy alone really reduce inflation and ease the cost of living crisis? Today, I'm talking to live news editor Patrick Keneally and international editor Bonnie Malkin about what governments can do to battle inflation and ease cost of living pressures. It's Friday, the 9th of September. We have a slightly different lineup on the newsroom edition today. Good morning, Patrick.
0: Thanks for having me, Gabs. I'd just say, to start with, I'm not an economist.
1: (laughs) Warning, we're talking about cost of living today. And Bonnie, I think this is your second outing on the newsroom edition. Welcome. Hi, Gabs. It is my second outing and I would like to say I'm also not an economist, but I'm looking forward to an
2: interesting chat today.
1: So the Reserve Bank has raised interest rates again this week. It's the most aggressive rate of increases since 1994. Patrick, what is going on?
0: Yeah, so the Reserve Bank has stepped in uh, this week to raise rates by half a percentage point. That takes the cash rate to 2.35, which is the official interest rate. For people who have mortgages, their mortgages are going to be higher than that. Uh, it's going to have a real impact. The reason the bank is doing this is to try and rein in inflation, which they're worried about. They want to bring it back down to the target band of 2 to 3%. And inflation is what is driving a lot of these kind of cost of living pressures that we're seeing in supermarkets, in petrol, in a whole lot of day-to-day goods that people rely on.
1: And so what does that rate increase actually mean in real terms for you know, the average Australian?
0: So according to Rate City, which is a comparison site, the latest increase will add $216 a month to an average mortgage of around $750,000. That sounds like a lot of money, and it is a lot of money, mm. but you've got to remember that property prices in Australia, particularly in capital cities, are, are quite high to begin with. And there are also a lot of people who are on currently on fixed-rate mortgages, a lot of which are going to expire by the end of this year, and so they will have a real shock when those fixed-rate mortgages expire and they end up paying in one hit, almost $1,000 more Mm. a month. It's going to be a tough Christmas for a lot of people.
1: Bonnie, what's driving this high rate of inflation? Inflation is kind of subject to several different pressures
2: and um, there's several things at play. What's been happening is inflation has been rising slowly um, over the last few years. I think you remember during the pandemic there was disrupted supply chains and there was lots of food that was left to rot in fields. There was panic buying and all of that kind of, you know, drove up the price of food. Um, And energy prices have also been rising at the same time. Then, of course, the beginning of this year, Russia invaded Ukraine and That made it all worse. It affected Ukraine being able to export grain. It also affected grain exports from Russia, obviously, and energy exports from Russia. Obviously, um, the EU has put a ban on coal um, from Russia. And there's also kind of a bit of a war going on over Russia's natural gas. So all of that has driven up the prices of things that everybody uses. Everybody needs fuel and everybody needs food. And so that means that across the world, lots of countries are dealing with these inflationary issues.
1: And there's also China's zero-tolerance approach to COVID, which has been causing ongoing supply problems every time a major city gets locked down. Yet another international factor out of our control. So, Patrick, if the biggest causes are all global and it is mainly supply issues affecting inflation, how is Australia's central bank raising interest rates going to fix the problem?
0: Well, it's a very good question. I like this quote from the US federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell, who famously said that we understand better how little we actually understand about inflation. <laughs> so even central bankers acknowledge that there's a lot about inflation that they don't really understand. So, what the RBA is doing here is they're targeting the demand side. By raising interest rates, households will have less to spend on discretionary items, eating out, entertainment, which has actually been going quite strong if we look at the latest GDP figures which came out this week. People are, after the pandemic, going out and enjoying themselves. They're going to pubs, they're going to restaurants, they're spending a lot of money. It's called
2: revenge. Revenge spending. (laughs) Revenge holidays, revenge eating out.
0: But the RBA can't do anything, obviously, about oil and gas prices. They're set at an international level. Australia is a large exporter of gas and we have no, currently, reservation policy that the government can step in and stop exporters exporting gas. So gas prices have gone up, not as much as in Europe or overseas. And fuel prices, although they're moderating now, massively went up.
1: I was just going to say Western Australia has low prices because they do have a reservation policy.
0: Yeah, they uh, took what many would consider a smart move a number of years ago to reserve part of their exports for domestic use, which keeps gas prices low. Small businesses out of business and people go into bankruptcy and demand drops and everybody stops spending money. It's it's a tricky one that they have to negotiate. Mm. There are other factors in play when you raise interest rates. So, for example, Higher interest rates can also add costs to businesses that will then pass those costs on to consumers. The other way it can have an impact is through adverse currency effects and that means that capital is moved around the world based on where they're going to get the best return. So if Australia raises its interest rates, more capital will come into the country, which will also feed inflation.
1: The Australian Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe has said many times that it's okay because households have savings and people are not, obviously having trouble finding work at the moment. There's lots of jobs going around. And he's even said that some people are starting to receive pay rises. Do you think this adequately reflects how Australians are feeling at the moment?
0: I would say no, it doesn't. <laughs> for, for a lot of people, the experience is that they're already finding it hard to make ends meet. And glibly saying that it's okay because households have savings, I don't think represents the experience of the majority. Mm. So, if we look at the household savings ratio, it fell from 11% in March to 8.7% in the June quarter. So, households on average are saving less.
1: And Bonnie, how much do we know about who these rates increases are going to hurt the most? Um, Well, early data shows
2: it'll be people in the suburbs um, who spend a proportionate amount of their income on housing and so that kind of creates the worrying prospect of these rate rises hurting some people um, more than others in a particularly disadvantaged people. There was some analysis of census data by the AFR which said that Auburn in Sydney's west has the highest rate of mortgage stress of any capital city area. 29% of mortgage holders devote nearly a third of their household income to meeting repayments. Mm. As we know that part of Sydney was one of the areas that was worst hit by lockdowns during the pandemic pandemic. pandemic as well. So it paints a kind of quite a bleak picture for them. Compounding this challenge is the soaring cost of living and real wages, as we know, have fallen by 3.5% over the past year, according to the Bureau of Statistics. That just results in more mortgage stress in the coming months.
0: So we saw really good, strong GDP figures this week come out on Wednesday. But as Greg Jericho, one of our Economics writers pointed out, it's based on pretty weak, shaky foundations. Yeah, we're out of recession. The GDP recovery has been quite strong. But where's it all coming from? A lot of it's coming from households reducing their levels of savings. A lot of it's coming from companies making very big profits. And all of this is happening while real wages are declining. So GDP is great. But as Grog says, you can't eat GDP.
1: Bonnie, there is a similar cost of living crisis. And I'll just make a quick aside here. I believe you're trying to bring in an acronym. Yeah, I am. COLC. COLC. There is a similar cult happening around the world. What are other governments doing? And are some governments doing things that Australia maybe should be doing? So you're right that cost of living
2: is a massive issue, not just inside Australia. In the UK, in Europe, there are some serious problems. Um, The UK is forecast to reach um, 18% inflation. Some people say 22% Mm. um, by early next year. And Estonia, um, which is the worst hit country in Europe, is already at 23%. Mm. Um, So there's lots of things that governments are trying to do to address that. Germany's giving out housing allowances and energy allowances to try and help people get through the winter. In the UK, there's a similar problem where people, you know, there's a suggestion that people are going to have to choose between heating and eating. Mm. And the new British Prime Minister, Liz Truss, has announced she's going to put a freeze on household energy bills. Um, Some other countries are doing things like making public transport free. But I think, you know, we're going to need lots of levers and governments are going to have to be quite creative with how they tackle it.
1: What are some of the other options, Patrick, that, you know, and, and the Australian government might be able to do?
0: They can, uh, for example, raise taxes. They can try and basically reduce the amount of money in the economy. The government can spend less, basically, or raise taxes. Things that governments can do often require legislation and they take a bit longer. It doesn't mean that they're not good options. So, for example, Queensland has just raised coal royalties, which basically is one way that the government can bring in more money without putting it, back into the economy. So you're taking money away from coal companies essentially and using it to put in the bank for governments. So as long as governments don't go and then spend that money again immediately, that's a way that you can tame inflation.
1: And the UK has introduced a windfall profits tax on the energy companies who are really raking in huge profits off the back of this energy crisis. Is that something that Australia should be thinking about?
0: It's something that a lot of economists have suggested, but the government, the federal government, has so far ruled out doing anything along those lines. Instead, they're talking about multinational profits tax and clawing back a greater proportion of tax revenue from multinationals, which has always been a very difficult thing for governments to try and attempt to do. Tax law is a very, very complicated area. Corporations employ a lot of lawyers to try and find ways of minimising their tax legally. On the other hand, win for profit tax are a pretty simple mechanism. So, there is a good argument for saying, okay, let's introduce one of these. We will, you know, call back more money from these multinationals in a much more simple, elegant way.
1: So, I'm hearing that there are not many immediate solutions. um, And we're going to have to basically be living with this crisis for the next six to 12
0: months. I would say there are other things that governments can do. Regulation, for example, price regulation. It's not popular with economists, but uh, it has been attempted overseas, sometimes with success. In Australia, we can regulate cost increases on things like public transport. Uh, We can regulate cost increases on things like private health insurance. And Governments can step in in those areas to actually stop inflation from getting out of control. In energy prices, that's another good example. Governments can step in and say, OK, you can only increase energy prices by 2% this year.
2: It's interesting you should say that, Patrick, actually, because um, the pound received a much-needed boost um, from reports that Liz Truss was going to um, put in this energy bill freeze. So there are things that governments can do.
1: What can we do as a media organisation? Bonnie, you're the international editor. You know, if this is an international crisis. How is our reporting on the situation able to maybe help people or help them understand it at least?
2: I think the key to what we do is to try initially in the first wave to explain what's happening to people. And we do that through kind of mobilising our correspondence around the world. We do kind of a wrap of how these things are playing out around the world in certain regions or globally I think we also have a, a role, I think, in helping people find new ways to live. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we do that a lot with the climate crisis. And I think there's an argument for us to do a similar thing with the cost of living. So kind of articles that explain, you know, how to cut your energy bills, how to stand up for your rights as renters. You know, all of these things can help empower readers to wrest back some control over their, their finances and their economic situation.
0: For all of our reporting, one of the main things we try and do is talk about how it affects people. So we talk to people all around the country about how they're dealing with cost of living pressures, about what increases in interest rates will mean for them, the very painful decisions and sacrifices, and in many instances they have to make choosing between buying petrol for their car that week or or groceries. So I think in all of our reporting, we try and tell it through the lens of of how it affects people in the community.
2: I think also we have obviously a very important role in um, asking questions of our politicians and making sure that they are doing the right thing for the disadvantaged members of the public and the voiceless people who are gonna suffer the most under the situation that we're in. So I think it's our job to hold them to account, especially in difficult times.
1: Next, a family tragedy and finding cause for hope. OK, now we come to what we can't get out of our head. Bonnie, I believe you have a sad one for us today.
2: Yes, um, I thought that I couldn't not talk about this story on the weekend The Guardian in London launched a piece by P Mills, who's the Saturday magazine editor. Uh, It's a very personal piece. It's probably the most powerful and heartbreaking story I've read for years. It's the story of her daughter, Martha, who died in a London hospital after a series of medical um, kind of errors and um, misdiagnosis. And it's... um, Basically, a kind of a horror show of mistakes that that led to her death. And Meri P. wrote about it in such a kind of close-up way, incredibly compelling, shocking, enraging. It kind of just stays with you. Mm. So um, I just thought that that was a really singular piece, and uh, I obviously really feel for Mary P. and her family.
1: Yeah, I think I'm the same. That's certainly something I can't get out of my head this week either. Patrick, we're going to make you choose something else and hopefully something with a bit of hope.
0: The one I thought about a lot this week was um, a piece from Donna Lou, our science writer in Melbourne, who wrote about a, a breakthrough which uh, researchers in Melbourne have developed panels which create hydrogen from humidity in the air using solar energy as well. So it's a breakthrough which kind of could have bigger implications for the way we power our homes. So much of our climate coverage at the moment prompts despair. Clive Hamilton, um, a a very prominent public intellectual in Australia, has um, written about how he had to stop working in the area of climate science for the last kind of um, decade because he was just so depressed by it Mm. um, and frustrated and enraged by the lack of action. Um, But a story like this proves that there are so many great scientists and researchers and engineers out there doing like so much great work and we have this fantastic technology that just needs to be deployed at a really large scale um, very quickly so uh, i found it a hopeful piece yeah and kind of enlightening and and fun and uh yeah i'd encourage everyone to go and read it
1: well thank you so much for joining us today patrick thanks. thank you bonnie thanks gabs <laughs> That's it for today. Thanks so much to Bonnie and Patrick for joining us. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Daniel Simo. The executive producers are me, Gabrielle Jackson, and Miles Martignoni. I hope you have a great weekend and we'll see you on Monday.